Mark chapter 6, 1 through 6. And then I'm going to be reading some verses, and we're not going to turn there for the sake of time, but I'm going to give you Matthew chapter 2. I'm going to be referring to several verses in Matthew chapter 2. So Mark chapter 6, verses 1 through 6. And let's just jump right in and read those. Let me give you just a little background here. Chapter 5 of Mark is really cram-packed. Uh, chapter 5 of Mark, Jesus heals the demon-possessed man. Remember, the demons go out and go into the hogs, and the hogs run into the lake and drown themselves. And then, so they ask him to leave. And then, as he comes back across the to the other side of the lake and lands on the shore, Jairus meets him and Jairus, is, his daughter is dying, at home dying and Jairus needs his daughter healed. And while he's going, he said, while he's going to heal Jairus' daughter, he encounters the lady that touches the hem of his garment and she is healed, the woman with the issue of blood. All of this in chapter five. And then when he gets to Jairus' house, they said, don't worry about it, she's already died and Jesus said, she's not dead, she's only sleeping. And they laughed at him. And he woke in and spoke, walked in and spoke to her and said, Daughter, arise. And she arose. And there's where we are now, starting in chapter 6, verse 1 of Mark. Chapter 6, verse 1. Jesus left that part of the country and he returned with his disciples to Nazareth, his hometown. And we're going to start out talking about that in just a moment. The next Sabbath, he began teaching in the synagogue. And many who heard him were amazed. They asked, Where did he get all this wisdom and power to perform such miracles? Verse 3. Then they scoffed, he's just a carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James and Joseph, or Joseph, Judas and Simon, and his sisters live right here among us. They were deeply offended and refused to believe in him. Then Jesus told them, a prophet is honored everywhere except in his own hometown and among his own relatives and his own family. Verse 5. And because of their unbelief, he couldn't do any miracles among them except place his hands on a few sick people and heal them. And verse 6, and he marveled or he was amazed at their unbelief. Let us bow our heads. Father, we love you. Thank you for this day. Thank you for the love we share here. Father, we pray for Jerry and Delvis and Lila. And Father, you know those that are on our hearts and that need your touch, Father. And you know the desire of our heart. Father, help us to surrender to your will, whatever you decide to do in Jesus' name. Be with us, Father, as we study this lesson. Let us take away from here today something that we can use that will bring us closer to you as we pursue you, as we walk through life, as we work out our salvation with fear and trembling, Lord, as we live out our lives seeking you as seekers. Give us something this morning, Lord, that we can take with us in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, the thought we're going to get to in a moment is he was amazed or he marveled at their unbelief. He marveled at their unbelief. But I want to talk about Nazareth for just a moment. Why was Jesus, why does it say he was the Nazarene? Why does it say he was from Nazareth? We all know that he was born in Bethlehem and lived in various places. And what I want to explain to us this morning, I want to do just a little teaching, a little history lesson before we get into the lesson this morning. And this won't cost you a thing, but it might help you sort some things out as it has for me. He said he came, said Jesus left this part of the country and returned with his disciples to Nazareth, his hometown. Now, Nazareth, his hometown. Matthew 2 tells us that Herod had questioned the Magi, the wise men. Remember, at the birth of Jesus, Herod had took them, questioned them, and asked them about their journey to see the king of the Jews. And exactly when the star first appeared. Now, when you go back and read Matthew 2, look for that phrase, when the star first appeared 
appeared. It's actually in there twice. It, that has always escaped me as I was reading. In fact, Luke don't really talk about the star. Only Matthew tells us about the Magi or the wise men and the star. Matthew chapter 2. Okay, they asked, and so Herod questions them, when did the star first appear? And that's in Matthew 2, 7. An angel of the Lord warned the wise man and also Joseph in a dream that Herod's true intentions was to kill the child. You can remember that. So the wise men did not return to tell Herod that they had found the child and Joseph took Mary and the baby Jesus and fled to Egypt. Now we all remember that story. But the reality is that Joseph seemed to have settled somewhere in or near Bethlehem for a period of time. Let me read to you Matthew chapter 2 verses 9 through 11. After Herod's interview, the wise men went on their way, and the star they had seen in the east guided them to Bethlehem. It went ahead of them, and it stopped over the place where the child was. Now listen to Matthew 2.10. When they saw the star, they were filled with joy. Verse 11, they entered the house, not the stable. They entered the house. And saw the child with his mother, Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasure chest and gave him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Now we're still in Bethlehem. We're still at Bethlehem here. And according to Matthew's account, Jesus was likely between one and two years old before he left Bethlehem actually to go to Egypt. Actually, he was probably between one and two years old by the time the wise men got there. Because... The key is when the star first appeared. Evidently, this star appeared more than one time and appeared many times to the Magi as they were coming seeking out the child. Now, let me read to you Matthew 2.16. Herod was furious when he realized that the wise men had outwitted him. He sent soldiers to kill all the boys in and around Bethlehem who were two years old and under. And why? He says, based on the wise men's report of the star's first appearance. So now, sometime into Jesus' childhood, Mary and Joseph are living in Bethlehem, near Bethlehem where he's born. They've never gone back to the hometown where they grew up. They stayed there with the child. The Magi, the wise men have found them. They're somewhere a year to two years probably into Jesus' childhood. And this is, this is something worth knowing. And so in summary, Jesus likely spent the first year or so with it, of his life in or near Bethlehem and then was taken to Egypt by his parents to escape Herod's attempt to kill him where they likely dwelt there two or three more years. And I'll tell you why here in just a moment, how we can know that. In Matthew 2, 19 and 23 reads like 19 through 23 reads like this. When Herod died, Herod died, as we know by history, in AD 4 or AD 5, somewhere in that area. So Jesus would have been four, five years old by now. When Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt. Get up, the angel said, take the child and his mother back to the land of Israel because those who were trying to kill the child are dead. Talking about Herod, Herod the Great. Uh, or Herod, the, verse 21. So Joseph got up and returned to the land of Israel with Jesus and his mother. Verse 22. But when he learned that the new ruler of Judea was Herod's son, Archelaus, he was afraid to go there. Then after being warned in a dream, he left 
for the region of Galilee. Think of that, the region of Galilee. Verse 23, Matthew 2, 23. So the family went and lived in a town called Nazareth. This fulfilled what the prophets had said, he will be called a Nazarene. Now, if you can get this straight, some people call him the Galilean. The way you have to, I kind of figure this out in my little pea, pea brain is like this. Galilee was the region. Galilee was kind of like the county, and Nazareth was kind of like the town inside the county, if you want to look at it like that. So that's why he was the Galilean, the Nazarene, all of these things. Because So now he's about four or five years old, and now at, at this point in Matthew where he starts his life, in Nazareth, and that's where we kind of take up. Of course, now he's 30 years old, so he spent this time in between there growing up in Nazareth, and, uh, and, and so they all know him there. That's why it's his hometown. Now, Matthew said something, he will be called a Nazarene. Did you know that that prophecy is not in our Bible? That prophecy where Matthew says it fulfills the prophecy that he shall be called a Nazarene? That's not in our Bible. Matthew's getting that from somewhere else. He's getting that from some scripture that were left out. Some prophecy that's been left out of the Bible that we have. And I know I've heard the arguments. Well, it says that he'll be of the lineage of David and he'll be a shoot from the shoot of Jesse and all of that. And that meant Nazareth. No, Paul, Matthew quotes there, he shall be a Nazarene. And he's quoting some. So we know that we don't have everything that was ever written. We don't have it all compiled for us today. Okay. Let's go back to Mark chapter 6. We've covered verse 1. We know now why he, Nazareth is his hometown. I did all of that just to establish why Nazareth is his hometown. Now look in Mark chapter 6 verse 2. The next Sabbath he began teaching in the synagogue and many who heard him were amazed. They asked, where did he get all this wisdom and power to perform such miracles? Now, Many believe that Jesus spent his youthful years studying in a rabbinical school. It's qualified him to teach in the synagogue. Now, Gary, I know you're interested in this. And the idea is it might be true because Galilee was renowned for having the schools of learning. And they were renowned especially for having the Jewish schools of Jewish learning and Jewish culture. So it's possible that he may have spent these years in Nazareth going to college, if you please. He was going to these, this place of learning. Now, the synagogue, is, as Gary has so eloquently taught us, the synagogue, I really didn't understand this until Gary was doing his study. The synagogue was kind of a satellite. When you talk about he was preaching and teaching in the synagogues and the people are going to the synagogue, the synagogue was not the temple. There was only one temple. The temple was in Jerusalem. And now the synagogue, you could go there and pray. You could go there to the synagogue and you could uh, do a number of other things, but you could not make sacrifices in the synagogue. Am I right, Gary? No sacrifice. You had to go to Jerusalem to make a sacrifice but you could pray and I understand you could maybe even make offerings in the uh, make some kind of offerings in the synagogues these little satellites so in other words the synagogues were little little plants of the temple if you will all around but at least once a year and Gary has been teaching us about that once a year they had to go they were required once a year to go to the temple, the main temple in Jerusalem. And he shared with us, if he wasn't here last Sunday night, he shared with us that, what did you say that the final figure was that were, were coming to Jerusalem? Three million? Three million people were coming to the little town of Jerusalem for the Passover in an eight-day period for the Passover. Wow. I find that just really interesting. Okay. 
But let's get to what does this mean to us? Jesus is teaching in the synagogue, and it says, And the people were amazed. Where did he get this wisdom and power to perform such miracles? Now, when they say that, I'm always looking for what the Scripture doesn't say, Steve. Why are they amazed that he's doing these miracles? He grew up in that town. So that actually tells us something, Boone. It probably tells us that during his childhood growing up, he probably wasn't in the business of doing miracles. Why else would the people find it amazing that this young man that had grown up right in their town had spent 25 years in their town growing up? Why were they finding it amazing that he was able to do these miracles? In fact, I believe that the truth is, as we've learned in the book of John, that when he changed the water to wine, that was the first miracle. That's what the Bible indicates, isn't it? That the first miracle he performed was after he was baptized and he changed the water to wine was the first of his miracles. Why is that even important? Well, it's important for us to understand because I've read a lot of books that said, well, Jesus was this magical child, this mystical child that was just always uh, making things float in the air. I mean, I'm making this up, but you know, he's always doing all of these. And But that's really not true because if he had been that kind of child, Mike, it stands to reason these folks wouldn't have been surprised when he returned to his hometown and he was able to do all these miracles. I just thought I'd throw that at you. Let's look at verse three and Mark chapter 6. Then they scoffed. Now remember, they're just in awe. Suddenly they're in awe and all he's able to do is his teaching and his wisdom and his miracles. And then look in verse 3. Then they scoffed. He's just a carpenter, the son of Mary. And they go on. We know his brothers. We know his sisters. They all still live right here in Nazareth in his hometown. The awe turns to envy. That's the lesson today. The awe turns to envy. He's a local boy, they say. He's a carpenter. We know his dad. We know his mom. We know his brothers. We know his sisters. And it says they were deeply offended. And they refused to believe in him. I am convinced. Here's where the lesson is today, folks. I am convinced the most deeply rooted flaw in human nature is envy. The most deeply rooted flaw that we have in our fallen human nature and our fallen side is envy. Why is it so difficult for me to be happy for those I know who do well in life? Why is it so difficult for us to be happy for those that we know well that do well in life? Envy, the definition of envy is this, a deep resentful discontent aroused by someone else's qualities or their successes. Let me read the definition again. A deep resentful discontent aroused by someone else's qualities or successes. Now, am I misdiagnosing or is this exactly what the people of Nazareth were feeling for Jesus? It's exactly what they were feeling for Jesus. Now, I pondered this. Had Jesus been a football, a baseball, a basketball star, or an entertainment icon, would the response have been the same as it was? Had he been any of the above, the local officials, of course I'm bringing it forward in time, but if had he been any of the above, the local officials would have surely held a fanfare and a ticker tape parade for him because often that puts the whole town in the spotlight and everyone gets to share in the success and in the spotlight. Listen to me, friends. Envy is dark. It's a dark spirit. 
Envy is a dark spirit. It can overwhelm, it can overtake us like a dark shadow. Note how quickly the awe over Jesus' ability to explain and teach scripture and do miracles turned to scoffing. And if you look at the end of that, it almost turned to hate, Gary. They just almost, what, what, what were the reason? Why, why were they hating him all of a sudden? They were in awe. Just a few minutes before they were in awe at his teaching and he's doing these miracles and now they almost hate the man. His hometown. Truthfully, and let's ask ourselves this question. Truthfully, how much of our life is spent in the dark clutches of envy? How much of my life is spent in the dark clutches or has been spent? I'm trying to, I'm sharing this with you because I realize this is true. And I realize my life, much of my life has been spent in the clutches of envy. Envy over people because they're more skillful, they're more intelligent, they're more successful, even because they just seem happier. You see, envy is rooted in the comparison of what we pursue, perceive that they have that we do not have. That's what the envy is rooted in. That's the root of envy. The thought of why did good fortune in some form come to them instead of me? Why is that person elevated in life or promoted and I am not? It's envy. That's envy. The encounter our Lord Jesus had with the people of his hometown is as old as Cain and Abel. Do you remember? In Genesis 4, 4 and 5, the Lord accepted Abel and his gifts, but he did not accept Cain and his gift. Then... This made Cain very angry. He became raw. His countenance fell. He looked dejected. Strifeful envy is illustrated throughout the historical events of the Bible. Aaron, if you remember, if you've ever studied this, Aaron and his wife became envious of Moses. Remember? And they began to talk about Moses' wife. You remember that story? How they used to say, started saying bad things about Moses' wife? And they were both got stricken with leprosy, if you will read that story. What was it? It was envy because Aaron was really the spokesman, remember? Aaron was sent along. He was the right-hand man, really, David. Aaron was the guy that was pretty well administered and doing everything, and Moses was the guy in the spotlight, and, and Aaron and his wife became envious because Moses was getting all the glory, and he was in the spotlight. When the population began to sing, Saul has killed his thousands, but David his ten thousands. Remember that story? King Saul became so envious that the Bible describes it as a dark spirit that would take him over and it would drive him into murderous behavior. Once, Maggie, he took the spear while David was in the room and tried to pin him to the wall, tried to run him through with the spear over the envy he had for the young man David. Now, such envy is not limited to the great figures of the Bible, and neither is it reserved for those who are of low esteem. You might not remember the name of Norman McGowan. I didn't, but I read his story. Norman McGowan was, tra was a traveling companion, advisor, and somewhat right-hand man to Winston Churchill. If you remember, Winston Churchill was the prime minister of Great Britain. Whenever they returned to London by train after any trip, Churchill had a standing order that his beloved dog, Rufus, should be brought to the train station to promptly greet him upon his return. When Churchill's private train car came to a stop, Rufus would be released from his lead and he had dashed to his master, always the first to greet Churchill upon his return. 
McGowan told of one particular time that he and Churchill had exited the train together and Churchill's beloved dog Rufus ran past Churchill and he reared up on Norman McGowan instead, licking and greeting him as Winston Churchill stood next to him. McGowan said that Churchill loved his beloved Rufus too much to blame him. So he turned to McGowan and said, in the future, Norman, I prefer that you stay on the train till I've said hello. What was he? Really? Would be envious over the affection of a pet? A great man as Churchill could let envy, encounter envy over the affection of his pet? In another instance, the counselors of Florence asked Leonardo da Vinci, you remember Mona Lisa, some of the great pictures. Am I right about that, Mona Lisa? Some of the great pictures that he painted. In another instance, the, the counselors of Florence asked Leonardo da Vinci, which was then Italy's most celebrated artist, to submit sketches for the decorations of the Grand Hall at Florence. One of the counselors had heard of a young and little-known artist who had done good work. His name was Michelangelo. And one of the counselors asked that he would submit some sketches also. The sketches of da Vinci were superb in keeping with the genius, but when the counselors saw the sketches of Michelangelo, there was a spontaneous expression of wonder and enthusiasm among the group. News of this reached da Vinci. He also heard that one of the counselors had said Leonardo was getting old. Da Vinci was never able to get over the eclipse of his fame by Michelangelo. In fact, he spent the remaining years of his life angry and bitter, never being able to appreciate the successes of his own skill as an artist. In fact, he is remembered by those who knew him as a bitter, brooding recluse from that point until the day he died. <clears throat> Jesus' response to the envy of those who would who should be happy for him, those hometown folks who should have found great joy in the fact that they had witnessed and even shared a part of the upbringing of the Messiah. Just imagine that. Wouldn't it be wonderful to be able to say, I grew up with the Messiah. He was from our hometown. I knew this man. But his response to their envy was this. A prophet is honored everywhere except in his own hometown and among his relatives and his own family. Now, Jesus indicates that he's well aware of the ever-present influence of the greatest dark tool the enemy has, this thing called envy, this powerful, perverted emotion that we call envy. There's an old fable of an old desert hermit that had dedicated his life to solitude, to prayer, to scripture, and meditation. His place of solace was the Libyan desert. One day, as the devil was passing over the desert, he observed a group of demons circling around this old holy man out there in the desert. They were trying all kinds of temptations and seductions of the flesh like fresh water, fresh meat, fruit and vegetables along with various other comforts to try to distract him, to try to get the old holy man to abandon his holy pursuit but to no avail. The old hermit was unmoved by the seduction of the demon group but instead continued on with his prayer, continued on with his meditation. The devil then presented him to the group and he said, your methods are too crude. Permit me to present you with a lesson. At that point, the devil leaned down and whispered into the ear of the holy man, Have you heard the news? Your brother has just been promoted to Bishop of Alexandria. As the old man heard these words, a scowl of malignant envy began to develop across his brow and then into his eyes and eventually clouded the whole demeanor 
of the once serene and content holy man. That's what envy does. We are all susceptible to the dark demonic power that lies behind it. Unchecked, it will destroy us like a rotting piece of fruit from the inside out. Just allowing envy to rise up in us for short periods robs us of precious peace and, and, and happiness. In verse 5, Mark records, because of their unbelief, And because of their unbelief, he couldn't do any miracles among them except place his hands on a few sick people and heal them. Mark records because of their unbelief. Did you see it? What did the envy produce? Unbelief. Unbelief was the product of the envy they had. And the result was Jesus couldn't do the works he came there to do. Have you ever thought of this? I can only imagine how deep the desire was, Brad, in our Lord's heart. to come back to his hometown that he loved and demonstrate that love and the power of God to the people he grew up with, to the people that had been so good to him, to the people that had helped his family when they were in times of need. In fact, I believe if Jesus had had his way, we'd be reading a completely different story here in Mark chapter 6. I believe that. It would read something like this. And Jesus entered into his hometown of Nazareth and entered into the synagogue and taught. And the people were amazed at his teaching and marveled at the miracles he performed so much that he remained there for many days. And he healed all the sick and taught every Sabbath in the synagogue. And when the time came for him to leave, the whole town came out and begged him to stay. But he told them he must go and be about his father's business. But not so. Because of the envy of those who knew him best, we read, he couldn't do any miracles in the town except lay his hands on a few sick folks. What's the lesson? Envy of any type is counter to faith and believing. Thus God cannot do the things in our lives that he truly wishes to do. No wonder Jesus said over and over, love thy neighbor as thyself. See, that's the counterpart of envy. Love thy neighbor as thyself. In other words, he says to me, find a way to be as happy for his or her success as though it was happening to me. And then God's blessings will flow uninterrupted and unhindered. I realize in studying this lesson why Jesus, speaking of John the Baptist, said there never has been one as great as John the Baptist. Do you know why he said that? Because John had died to envy. John had died to the lure of envy. How do we know that? Because they came to John one day as he was baptizing and said, Teacher, there's another, talking about Jesus, there's another who has come and many of your disciples are leaving you and going to him. And do you remember what John's reply was? He must increase. I must decrease. John was dead to envy, wasn't he? John had conquered envy in his life. What's the cure? The cure, my friends, is stop envy in its tracks. Call it out in ourselves. When we feel it start to rise up, confront it. Be honest. Be truthful. And be truthful even sometimes out loud to ourselves. Say, I'm just jealous over his or her good fortune. I'm just envious over their good fortune. It is evil for me to harbor these feelings. These emotions are from the enemy and he'll use it to destroy me. The enemy will use this emotion to destroy me. I want God's blessing to flow freely in my life. Therefore, I must find a way to be thankful when good things come to others. Just as though they're coming to me. 
What a sad ending to Jesus' only visit, as far as I know, this is his only visit back to his hometown of Nazareth. What a sad ending to Jesus' only visit to his hometown, and he was amazed. He marveled at their unbelief. And you know, that's the only place in the Bible those words are recorded, that he was amazed at their unbelief. The only place in the word that it's recorded. Would you pray with me? This is the prayer that God gave me. Would you think of this prayer and meditate this prayer as you're praying as we close? Father, I thank you for this lesson today. You have used your Holy Spirit to speak to me today. I receive this lesson. Father, I confess to you that I have allowed envy to operate in my life. I've allowed envy to operate unchecked. I have secretly been envious when those I love that I should be happy for have done well. I realize today that if I really want your divine blessings to flow unhindered in my life, envy must be conquered. I cannot conquer this great enemy of my soul all alone, but I am victorious through the blood of your son, Jesus. I ask of you, Father, beginning this moment, show me the envy that is secretly lurking in the dark places of my life. Reveal it to me as I come before your throne of grace. Give me the strength to identify, confess it, and release it to you. Beginning today, let me see envy for what it is the moment it rears its ugly head in my life. In Jesus' name I pray. And we all said, Amen.